here after the service? How long after, after the service are you going to be here? Oh, so you got like five hours. So she could sit around for like five hours. It's totally fine. Uh, no, talk to her, pray for her. Um, uh, just uh, how, how God can use you um, in whatever way uh, to help her in the ministry that he's doing through her and through the others there. And so we want to make sure we give him the glory through all of that. Uh, as I had said before, it's been three weeks since I've been here. So I missed the last two Sundays um, and uh, thanks to, to Phil and to Richard for filling in. Richard's coming in again about six to eight weeks. So mid-October uh, is when uh, Katie and the kids and I are going to be gone. Um, and so um, thanks for not throwing tomatoes at them. And the fact that Richard wants to come back is huge. So um, they, uh, they both said uh, they loved you guys and, and uh, uh, how friendly everybody was and and how God-glorifying it was to join together in, in our church family to be, to be able to be a participant in that. So we are continuing in 1 Samuel. We've done the first chapter. We're going to hit the second chapter now. We've got a ton of stuff to go through. Uh, but just a little bit of review because it's been so long. Uh, 1 Samuel 1, we read about Hannah, a barren woman whose rival Penina provoked her to deep affliction. And we need to remember those two names, Hannah and Penina, because they're going to come up a lot today um, in chapter 2. But in the midst of Hannah's grief of not being able to have a child, she didn't turn to her husband. She didn't turn to the world. She turned to the one that she knew could handle it and was the answerer of prayers. She knew the Lord. She knew Yahweh. She knew that only he was the giver of life who could open her womb. She calls him the Lord of hosts, the commander of all the universe. She cries out to the only one who could remove her affliction. And she vows to him, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Now, it's easy for us to take this, uh, this chapter or that statement, pull it out and then put it into our world and say, well, if you're a woman and you're struggling to have a baby, then this is all you have to do, and God will give you a baby. Now, that's a misapplication. He may or he may not provide children for someone who's unable to have a baby. We have to keep it in context because it's not just about Hannah having a baby or a child. It's about her affliction, which points to something deeper and greater, not only in Israel, but in us. And if we remember, she doesn't ask for more children. She asks for one, that one that she gets, this son, she will take it and give it back. She doesn't say, I'll give this back and then give me even more kids. She goes, I just need one and I'll give it back to you. I'll give them back to you. And Yahweh hears her and remembers her and gives her Samuel. And true to her word, Hannah gives Samuel back to Yahweh, sacrificing her one and only son to, do, to lead God's people to the anointed one, to the king, 
to David, because that's what all the book of Samuel is all about, is finding the anointed one, the king, the one who would redeem the people of God, who would lead them out of their affliction and lead them back to Yahweh. And both David and Samuel ultimately point ahead to the one, the anointed, the only son of God who will fully accomplish the redemption of God's people because we remember there's this anticipation well maybe Samuel's the one oh maybe David's the one nope no he's not it's always this almost but not quite and then they fail and that's to point us to the one who did what Samuel and David and so many other of God's people Moses Adam Abraham that they were not able to do Jesus saves God's people from their sins. He opens the way to the throne of God for all who believe in him as their Savior, treasure, and Lord of their lives. And so we get into chapter 2, and it begins with Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving. Her prayer speaks of the character of the faithful and the character of the wicked, but ultimately the character of the Lord himself. What seems on the surface to be about weapons and hunger and life and death, rich and poor, is actually about salvation and judgment. Samuel is written in a narrative genre. You have to read it that way, but every once in a while, there's a poem that's thrown in there. and You cannot read a poem as you do a narrative. You cannot read a love poem today in the same way. Literally, is my heart broken? No. It means something different. It's, it's lofty language to give an idea of what is really trying to be said. And so, because this is a poem, we have to read it with that in mind in order to grasp its entire meaning. And so what we're going to do is, I'm going to read it, and we're going to work through it verse by verse. We're going to see what does this poem say? And we're going to take it as a whole, not just piece by piece. So if you will turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proud. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Father, may you use these words to teach us, to open our, the eyes of our hearts so that we may understand who you are and who we are in you. Again, Father, let this be for your glory and not our own. We ask this. In your name, amen. In verse 1, Hannah speaks of the character of the faithful. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoiced in your salvation. Hannah represents everyone who is faithful to Yahweh. Her heart exalts. That means it's filled with joy. Her strength is exalted. That means it's lifted and raised high. Her mouth laughs in scorn, mocking her enemies, and then immediately go, well, that's not a very godly characteristic. How can Anna, Hannah say such a thing? Well, it's because all of her words focus around the Lord, Yahweh. My, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength exalt, is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Her salvation from her affliction drives her rejoicing to be founded upon Yahweh, not herself. Her praise and strength are given by Yahweh, and her enemies are the enemies of God. Not because they don't like Hannah, but because they are wicked and do not put their trust in the Lord. And then in verse 2, she follows. This is the character, is character of the faithful. It's all in the Lord, in the Lord, in his salvation. Who is God? Who is Yahweh? She says in verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Why can Hannah put such trust in God it is because he is holy. He is set apart from anything else in the world. There is none like our God. He is unique and compares to no one and nothing. He is Hannah's rock. He is faithful and strong, immovable and solid. He is the foundation for life and living upon which those who are faithful to him can stand. Yahweh is the center. Yahweh is the source. Yahweh is the confidence of all who are faithful to him. And so then she goes, this is the godly, this is the faithful, because this is who God is. Well, here is the wicked. What is the characteristics? What are the characteristics of the wicked? Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Yahweh is not ignorant of the wicked's pride and arrogance. He is a God of knowledge. He knows all things. He sees all things. He knows the heart of every single person who has ever lived and will ever live. Nothing is hidden from his sight. 
He knows all things. And nothing is hidden from his judgments. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him his actions are weighed, it says in verse 3. It is in his knowledge and his judgment that he acts. And then in verses 4 through 10, he clearly states the truth that he is the bearer of salvation for his faithful and judgment for his enemies. So verses 4 through 10 have to be seen in the light of the characteristic of those who are faithful, the characteristics of those who are wicked, who are his enemies, and the characteristics of who God is. Neither of those two, those two groups, the faithful and the wicked, compare to God. He's above all things. So if you put it in context, Hannah is faithful to the Lord. She has proven that. Penina is faithful to herself. She doesn't need God's help. She's a fertile woman popping out babies left and right, and she is just mocking Hannah because she can do nothing. That may be a little bit too graphic, I'm sorry. But that's, that's the reality of it. Penina is trusting in herself. Hannah is trusting in the Lord. Hannah is faithful Penina is arrogant and proud and wicked and does not know the Lord. That's the context of these last seven verses. That throughout these verses, there are comparisons made between these two groups of people. And so we're going to take them one at a time so we can attempt to understand, again, the poetic language that's being used. In verse 4, this is what Hannah says. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. The proud and the arrogant trust in their own might to fight their battles. Their powerful bows are their hope and reliance uh, upon victory for themselves. If we bring it again into the context of Hannah's situation, Penina is relying upon her own ability to have many, many children. Her trust is in herself and her own might and her own bow. But Yahweh breaks the bow of the mighty, for their might is nothing in comparison to God. But it is the feeble. It is those who stagger and stumble. They struggle standing on their own two feet, who have no might of their own, who are unable to have children on their own, Hannah who rely upon Yahweh for their strength because they have no strength of their own. The picture given is a, a binding. When he says they bind on strength, this binding, this tying upon themselves the strength of Yahweh in the midst of weakness and powerlessness. Hannah can do nothing, and so she ties upon herself the strength of God. What else is there to do for her? In Psalm 20, verses 6 through 8, it says this, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven 
with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. The proud and the arrogant trust in their own might, not just physical strength, not just mental strength, but spiritual strength. They trust in themselves, but the faithful bind upon themselves the strength of the Lord. It gives a picture of total and utter reliance upon God in the midst of affliction. And then verse 5, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. This isn't about food. This is poetic language, right? Those who were at one time full and satisfied in themselves find that their satisfaction actually never lasts. Okay, we, we get that idea, right? There's a reason we have three meals a day. Eventually we get hungry. Right? But again, this is not about food. This is about spiritual strength. Those who trust and rely upon themselves for a while, for a day, maybe even for weeks, will be like, I'm strong, I'm strong. But eventually, they're going to find that they're actually weak. Their bellies are empty. And they're forced to rely upon their own power to fill their satisfaction. Once again, I'm going to rely upon myself. I just got to buckle up and do it. But it's a vicious circle where their satisfaction never lasts, forcing them to once again reply, uh, rely upon themselves only to find out that it never lasts and they have to rely upon themselves and it never lasts and they have to do it all over again and it's just vicious, vicious, vicious circle over and over and over again. But those who were hungry and had no means of their own to be satisfied to get rid of their affliction find that their hunger ceases. It's not just satisfied for a day, it's gone. They never have to seek food again. Again, it's not food. They never have to seek strength again when they put their trust in the Lord. He doesn't satisfy for a time, He satisfies forever. Their hunger never returns because of His sufficient supply. And then the second half of verse 5. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The one who is barren, Hannah, has borne seven children. Now remember, again, this is poetic language, right? She hasn't had seven children. What in the world does this mean? She's had one. She's never asked for any more. So what is, what's being said? Well, it's not that she's suddenly between the end of chapter 1 and verse 5, chapter 2, suddenly seven years later, she's got seven kids. That's not what's being said. The number seven is a number of completion and perfection in the Bible. So to say that the once barren woman has seven children is to say that Yahweh has completely provided for her. The Lord is not a halfway type of guy. Uh, type of God. He gives exactly what is needed, when it is needed, and how it is needed. But for those who have many children, who trust and rely upon themselves, they are forlorn. That's a word we just don't use. It means to wither away, to dry up. 
to dwindle. It's very graphic language of Penina. What has been so, uh, held so dear and held high as a sign of greatness and might is all dried up. She's never complete. She's never satisfied. Hannah, though, is complete with one son in Samuel. She doesn't know she's going to have more, if she's going to have more. She has willingly give that, given that one son back, and that one son, not Samuel himself, but the fact that God gave it to her, has completely removed her affliction, and she's no longer sorrowful. She's no longer afflicted. But Penina, who has a lot of kids, is forlorn, is dried up, is dwindled, is never satisfied, and is incomplete. Verses 6 through 8. This is all going to come together at the end, okay? So let's, let's, let's hold to that, okay? Uh, just remember that. Verses 6 through 8. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit, at, sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. These three verses focus on Yahweh's sovereignty, the fact that he causes or allows all things in all of history to happen. But it's also focusing on his providence, that he works all things to the conclusion of his will, his desire, and his plan. So at first glance, these verses seem to simply describe Yahweh's character, right? Which it, definitely does, but there's more to them if we look more closely. Yes, Yahweh can kill and bring to life, make some rich and some poor, but again, this is poetic language, and we must see them as a whole, as the context of what Hannah is trying to get at, not individual snippets of wisdom. Hannah is actually saying the same thing over and over again, culminating at the end of verse 8 with the purpose of Yahweh's doing these things. So there's really only two truths that are being said, said here. The first is found at the beginning of each statement. The Lord kills. He brings down to Sheol. He makes poor, brings low. Sheol is another way of describing death. It's the final resting place of those who die. The other, the other is found at the end of each statement, the Lord brings to life. He raises up, makes rich, exalts. So what is being said here? Well, Hannah's not speaking of physical life and death or earthly prosperity and poverty. That's all true. That's all true. God does do all of those things. But it's about spiritual prosperity and poverty, spiritual life and death. Remember, the, the context of the passage is around the faithful and the wicked. So those who are faithful to Yahweh, relying upon Him for their strength, and those who are His enemies, who rely upon themselves and the things of this world for their strength, Yahweh knows and judges all things and has every right to kill and to bring to life, to send down to Sheol or to raise them up, to make spiritually poor or spiritually rich to bring spiritually low or to spiritually exalt. 
Yahweh speaking of salvation, the removal of affliction. He does it. He is always right in raising those who trusted him out of the ash heap, out of the dust of mourning, making them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Notice that the princes are are not disposed of. They're not cast out. They're not brought down, but that those who are mourning sit with the princes. And the language of inheritance rings of the covenant language. In other words, Yahweh raises up and saves those who are faithful to him, trusting in him in the midst of their trouble, midst of their affliction, in their mourning, and in their weakness. But he judges those who rely upon themselves and their own strength. Instead of salvation, they find death. They find eternal torment away from the seat of honor. Now, how can Yahweh do such a thing? How can the Lord, what right does he have to make a decision like that, to save some and judge others, to save the faithful and to judge those who are wicked, who trust in themselves and not in him? Well, he answers, The pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. He can do such a thing, and we don't like this answer, because he is God. It's like Paul in Romans, how can God save some and not others? And he says, who is the the pot to tell the potter, the clay maker, what is right and what is wrong? Or with Job, well, Job, where were you at the beginning of creation? What did you say to the oceans and to the wind and to the land and to the animals? What was it like at the beginning? In other words, I am God and you are not. What authority do I have to do these things? It's because I am Yahweh. I am the great I am. I am the creator of the world. He can do them because he is God. You and me, we are not. He created the world. He determines its comings and its goings. It is the Lord, not you, not me, who made all the earth and set it in place. And it is he who determines and judges and saves, not us. He is God. We are not And to bring the point home, he ends with verses 9 and 10. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries or the enemies of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Yahweh protects the feet and the walking, the life of his faithful ones, but cuts off the wicked in darkness. The Lord lights the path of life to salvation for those who are faithful to him, but keeps the wicked in the darkness of eternal death. 
The wicked are his enemies because they fight against him. He fills them with terror and disheartens them. He works against them. Why? Because they do not put their trust in him. They are penina. It is not by our own might that we are saved. It is not by our own might that we find satisfaction and joy for all time. It is only by the work and the power of God that any of us can call ourselves children of God, that any of us can call ourselves faithful. Yahweh is the judge of the whole earth, and those who trust in the chariots and the horses of this world will find only hunger, weakness, and death. But if these things, because they never satisfy They never satisfy here on earth. They will never satisfy an eternal life. And those who put their faith in Christ here on earth find satisfaction here. How much more will they find it in eternal life? Everything is culminated at the end of this prayer. It it ends at the end of this prayer. It says it will be accomplished by Yahweh through his king, through his anointed one. You see, we said this a, a number of, what, four or four weeks ago, five weeks ago, we were talking about what is the purpose of, of the book of Samuel. It's to point us to the king. It's, it's the search for the king. Remember at the end of Judges, everyone does, did what was right in his own eyes. They're, the people of God are lost. They need a leader. They need an anointed one. They need a king. And so Samuel... The book of Samuel is this walk of God's people finally finding the king in Saul, realizing he is not the one. David comes up. He's a man after God's own heart. This is the guy. And then it turns out that he's not. They are looking for his anointed one. The one who would fulfill the covenant promises made to Adam, Noah, Abraham, and Moses. There is a great anticipation for this king, but it will be quickly understood that as good as these kings are, they are never able to accomplish what is actually promised. And they never were meant to. Instead, David was meant to point God's people to the true king, to the true anointed one of Israel, to Jesus Christ, the giver of salvation who sacrificed himself for the faithful ones of God. The faithful of God will be saved and the enemies of God will be judged. That's what this prayer says. That's the focus of this prayer. Now this sounds like moralism, right? That if we just simply obey God, then he will save us. But that puts our salvation on us then. It says, well, if, if I'm just faithful to God, he's going to weigh my good works over my bad, which means I'm good enough. And the idea of the Bible is our righteous deeds are like filthy rags when compared to the righteousness of God. And we, he demands perfection of us and we can't do enough good One bad, boom, outweighs all the good that we can do. 
So moralism is thrown out, legalism, to just obey and then everything will be good. That is not what is being said here. That's a, a falsehood that is, leads people astray from the truth of the gospel message. Our salvation is not on our ability to be obedient to God, our ability to be able to obey as many laws as possible. That's impossible for us to accomplish. And as Hannah says in verse 1, her joy is not found in her ability to save herself. Her joy is found where? In His salvation of her. His removal of the affliction. For it is His salvation that is given to Hannah. And so it is with us. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God. What Paul is saying there is that our salvation, the grace that we receive, the faith even that we have, are given to God's people by God as a gift. They are not earned. They are freely given to those who are his people. But the opposite is also true that those who trusted themselves and in their own might for their salvation, for pleasing God and satisfying Him, hoping that at the end of time, you'll be happy with me. That will not work. They will receive not life, but eternal death. They will receive His judgment, not His salvation. Ultimately, this is what's at stake for us today. Not just individually, not just corporately as a church, not just the church at large throughout the whole world, but this is a whole world problem. God gives salvation for, to His faithful, and He gives judgment to His enemies. There is no middle ground. There is no riding the fence. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is where do we stand we cannot be political in the sense of like, well, I see your point. Well, I see your point and stand and straddle the fence. If we think we can do that in actuality, we are on the side of judgment. And so where do you stand? You have to ask yourself that question. Where do you stand? Are you a Hannah or are you a Penina? Are you trusting in your own strength and ability to be saved to eternal life? As Mary Lynn said, how many people in Germany go, well, there's a God, but it doesn't really affect my life. It doesn't really matter. This is not just a matter of, of the here and now. This is an eternal matter. There is a God, and it does matter. To know Him or to not know Him determines where we will be for eternity. Are we trusting in our own strength and ability to be saved to eternal life or, like Hannah, trusting and rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord through the death of His Son and the life of His Son and the resurrection of His Son and the ascension of His Son to the right hand of God in heaven? Because it's God who saves those who are his faithful. 
and God judges those who are his enemies. We cannot, we cannot avoid this truth. If we deny this truth, he is faithful. He gives salvation to his faithful and he judges those who are his enemies. If we deny that, if we ignore that truth, then there's no point for us to be here today. Our faith, who we are as God's people, or who we aren't as, as God's, not as God's people, is determined by that truth. So we, we beg, whether you're, you're listening, whether you're here this morning, and you go, oh my, I, I am a Penina. I don't have the grace of God. I've, I've never received salvation. I've, I don't know who this God is that Hannah prays to. Then we beg you, believe and be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you deny that, there's nothing but eternal death awaiting you in hell. It's not a happy message <laughs> for those who do not believe, but for those of us who do believe, we scream with joy as Hannah did. We rejoice and exalt in the name of the Lord and in his salvation. This is why we do communion. This is a reminder for us of what Christ did on the cross. He saved us. And so as his people, we rejoice in the name of the Lord. So as we take this together, this is serious stuff for us as God's people. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek you, you need to be a, a faithful member of the kingdom of God. You need to be saved. You need to be God's child. If you're not sure, if you're that way, we ask you refrain. If you know for sure you're not a child of God, we ask that you refrain. But if you are saved, if you are a child of God, we welcome you at the table. Take this seriously. This is more than just a ritual. This is a reminder for us that who we are as God's people is founded not upon our greatness and our awesomeness and our strength, but in the greatness, awesomeness, and, and, and strength of the Father, the Lord, Yahweh, who is our God. And so as we go, you can make a line, grab the cup, grab the bread, go back to your seat, and then together as a family of God, we will take communion as one to remember the faithful are saved, and we praise God that he saved us. So whenever you are ready, go ahead and make your way to the table.